This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 2 and Episode 3 of the Interstitial Lung Disease Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland ILD community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon University NHS Foundation Trust. I have a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung diseases and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. Anne-Marie Doyle, a senior clinical psychologist at the Royal Brompton and Harefield NHS Foundation Trust. And the focus of our conversation will be around mental health and well-being for people with interstitial lung disease and the importance of psychological support. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wonder if I could start by asking you, Anne-Marie, just a little bit about um, the broad outline of the role of a psychologist in a specialist respiratory uh, centre such as the the one you're currently working in. Um, Yeah, I guess um, there are lots of different aspects to a psychologist's role. So in terms of clinical services, you can think about direct work with patients and families. And that's really supporting um, the patient on the journey of living as well as they possibly can with their physical health condition. Um, In this instance, we're talking about living with ILD. And if you think about um, that journey of living with the symptoms and living with a diagnosis, somebody starts to have uh, symptoms and then they might go to their GP. Um, They might uh, be given some medical advice. They might continue to have the symptoms. But that process of living with the symptoms and maybe being worried about them or maybe not being worried, uh, some people, they might be living with symptoms for months or a few years before they're actually diagnosed. So there's that period of, I've got this niggling symptom. What is it? Uh, Varying degrees of worry. Um, Some people will worry more, some people worry less. And at some point, there'll be some investigations and some focused, um, maybe uh, the person will be seen within a specialist respiratory clinic where they have investigations. And at some point, they will have the diagnosis and they'll be given the name of the condition. And I think that's quite a life-changing moment for somebody because uh, they might not have had any uh, serious health problems up until that point. And it's the first time They've been told that they're living with a a health condition, and in this case, it's a long-term progressive health condition. And I I think the psychological issues around that point of diagnosis are quite important. I think sometimes it comes as a shock. Sometimes people feel quite upset about that. And it's a process of really learning about the condition. Um, So people uh, often read Um, maybe contact peer support groups, speak to their doctors, speak to their specialist nurse, uh, and really learn about the condition, what it means for them, and also learn about the treatment options. So around the time of um, the diagnosis, that might be the start of uh, a new treatment. So it's it's psychologically adjusting to the diagnosis, but then maybe quite quickly starting a new medication, and then starting to feel, okay, how do I feel on this medication, the routine of starting to take 
um, medication, for example, on a daily basis. These are changes to somebody's routine. Um, and it takes a while, I think, to build up a confidence and a knowledge about what the person is managing in terms of their health. So I think supporting somebody psychologically around the time of diagnosis is quite an important time. And it, I think it's often it's a time of um, a higher level of distress. When somebody starts to feel confident uh, and understands their health condition, I think it can feel much more manageable. Um, and then if we just kind of quickly whiz across uh, living with a condition across the years, kind of fast forward a little bit, there might be ups and downs with physical health. Um, and when there's a nice period of stability, people can get on with their lives. But when there's a deterioration in health, a little bit of a setback, that requires a bit of adjustment and can impact on they can impact on working life. It can impact on what the person's able to do at home. It can impact on relationships. Um, but also it can impact on a person's sense of identity and their self-confidence. And I think issues, for example, who to tell about uh, their health condition and their diagnosis. I think people are often quite wary about telling colleagues or managers about the health condition that they're living with. If in an ideal world, uh, we have very supportive managers, great teams with understanding about you know, how we can support people in workplaces to live well with their um, long-term health conditions. But we know it's not quite as straightforward as that. And there are different levels of understanding and different levels of support. So people, I think, probably need to be thoughtful and careful about that. Um, and I think in terms of sharing that information, either in a work setting or with within a, a social uh, relationships, once you have told people about your diagnosis, you can't not you can't take that information back. So I, I think it's probably worth thinking about carefully for people. So we're talking about kind of health going up and down, but it's also, you know, we're talking about managing symptoms which might be visible to others. So for example, breathlessness, um, somebody might see somebody on a pavement who's kind of pausing for breath. Um, people who don't know that person might come up and say, are you okay? Um, and how does that person, how does the person feel about uh, members of the public coming up and, and inquiring. Some people are okay with it. Some people find it a little bit annoying. What's it like to have a cough in in, in an office? Um, what's it like to have a cough at home? What's it like to have a cough on public transport? And we know that that can be very difficult for people, particularly, I think, since the pandemic and actually the meaning of a cough, how that's interpreted, for example, within public places and how comfortable the person therefore feels but also thinking about if the breathlessness gets worse and the disease, uh, the process of the disease progresses, um, starting oxygen can be a challenging time because, again, it's visible signs of illness um, to people that outside of the family, outside of the healthcare team. And then maybe we can talk a little bit later about, you know, just thinking about um what we would want for, for any of us um, we were all we will all live for a certain amount of time in our lives some of us have short lives some of us have very long lives and but knowing that we will all come to that point sometimes it's helpful to think about what we would want as an individual um, and to think a little bit about that and sometimes that can take away some of the anxiety and fear about that stage of all of our lives but certainly uh, 
the uh, that's what that will mean for somebody living with ILD in terms of their symptoms and what care might look like and what good care might look like at that um, stage in their lives. So we, we've talked a, a lot about those um, different stages of, of, of a patient's journey and um, and and throughout that throughout the change is um, being cognizant of their psychological well-being. You mentioned Anne Marie the the word uncertainty, which is a, a word I hear a lot uh, with my patients using, and that uncertainty often starts at the beginning, um, often with you know uncertainty about what symptoms mean and uncertainty around diagnosis, and then uncertainty further on with regard to access to treatment or or not um, and, and care pathways. And so I'm interested in, in your view as, as a psychologist uh, about how we, we support patients at that period. How, how do we support patients to manage that uncertainty in a way that, um, that doesn't cause them more psychological distress? Um, I think in, in health teams, we talk a lot about medical uncertainty. Um, and I think when we're living, when a person is living with a health condition, um, there is uncertainty about how that health condition might change over the months, over the years. But I, th- I think we have we're very consciously aware of that medical uncertainty. I think more broadly in life, there's always a lot of uncertainty, but we're not so consciously aware of it. And I think the the uncertainty that we that patients are prompted to consciously think about are really uncertainty in terms of levels of physical functioning. Will they need to change, for example, career plans? What adjustments might they need to contemplate in the coming years that might be different from how they were envisaging their future? Because I think partly we grow up with an idea that we will live hopefully a relatively healthy life and then we might get to retirement age which keeps changing but say mid-60s and then we might get to our 70s 80s 90s I think that's uh, and that we do different things at different stages of life Um, but I think when somebody's diagnosed with a, a health condition such as ILD it prompts people to rethink that trajectory and to think actually I I can't necessarily rely on having good physical health uh, for the next 20 years. And do I need to be putting in uh, a range of plans to accommodate these possible ways forward in life? Um, And I think that generates anxiety. And I think what underpins a diagnosis is really that it puts people in touch with their mortality. And I think generally we live our lives day to day, as if we will always live on this planet, as if we will never come to the end of our lives. And I think that's a little bit about humans. That's how we function. That's how our brains work. We don't have a day-to-day conscious awareness of our own mortality. But I think health conditions and a, a deterioration or a worsening in physical health, it does put us in touch with our, our mortality issues and and then we're then prompted to contemplate our lives. Are we doing something meaningful? Are we making the best use of our time? So it prompts a psychological process um, like this. And again, it, it touches on fears around a foreshortened life expectancy. 
So there's the psychological issues and, and the feelings that people have connected to those things. But I, I would say more broadly, just we are always living with uncertainty in our lives. And if you think about in a recent, just recent years, but I think for most of the population around the world, we didn't foresee uh, COVID coming along and we've had to manage that. I think these kinds of world events, we know there are lots of global challenges, but they they all uh, generate uncertainty. So I think there's a lot more uncertainty that we're managing all the time, but we don't, we're not necessarily consciously aware of it. And, and actually we're, we're pretty good at managing uncertainty. You can still get on and you can still plan. Um, you just need to build in some flexibility. Yeah. And thank you, Anne-Marie. And I'm, I'm thinking in specifically in relation to um, interstitial lung disease. From, from your perspective, why is that, that psychological support so important to, to, to patients at, at those various stages, particularly in the early stages of, um, of diagnosis and understanding how better to manage symptoms? Well, I, I, think the psycho- I think what we know is that there is a lot of psychological distress, which is, is very normal distress. It, it's a healthy emotional response to challenging physical health circumstances. Um, but I, I think it's gone, particularly in ILD, it's gone a little bit unrecognised, not by, I think, healthcare professionals working in the field because they're very aware of uh, the distress in patients and in families um, and how ILD can impact on people's lives in lots of different ways and on individuals and on families. But in a way that there is there is an amazing focus, and I think because of medical uh, pharmacological advances, there is an amazing focus on the biology and the treatments. But in a way, the psychological needs, I think historically, they've not been so well recognised and articulated. And I think the teams across the country generally work fantastically well with providing psychological support to patients and families. And I, I think it's probably worth... Uh, highlighting and recognizing that all members of a multi-professional team provide psychological care within their role. So doctors, as a part of the medical care, uh, psychological care is a component of that. If you think if somebody has to go into hospital for um, some treatment, then the ward nurses, the clinical nurse specialists, part of their role is providing psychological care. And I think what a psychologist can add to a team is really to uh, develop the skills and knowledge within the multi-professional team so that they uh, are better placed to provide psychological care as as an integrated part of uh, the general health care. So it's really enhancing, I think having a psychologist present in a team, within a service, within a hospital, enhances the provision of psychological care integrated as part of medical care. Just going back to your your first question, um, uh, you know, what can psychologists bring to a service apart from um, supporting patients and families directly? They will do uh, training with the teams, and all of this is about building skills and competencies in provision of psychological care which then improves the quality of the services uh, received by patients and families. So there's a, there's a, a knock-on effect um, in that sense. 
And, and you also mentioned the important role of the clinical nurse specialists, which I think is invaluable because they have that ongoing uh, relationship. So thinking of, uh, about your role um, uh, as, uh, as an experienced uh, specialist uh, with knowledge of interstitial lung diseases, are there other ways that, that you support nurses in practice? For example, uh, things such as clinical supervision or mentorship, is, is, is that something that exists within clinical services or, or is that perhaps an aspiration? Let's just think about the way care is organised in a hospital-based system. You've got a range of health professionals with uh, fantastic levels of expertise, great clinical skills, and the whole point of a multi-professional team is that you have uh, health professionals from different special specialties coming together to provide the best care for any one individual um, that's being treated. So when you've got a psychologist within the multi-professional team and there are case discussions about these are the uh, test results, um, this, is, this is who this person is as, a, as an individual, this is the family and work situation, um, this is what the patient is saying that they want. You can get the perspectives from those health professionals in terms of recommendations. And I think very much it's about putting the patient at the centre of um, giving them information, helping them understand what are the treatment options, what are the pros and cons of the different treatment options, and then supporting their decision making in terms of making decisions about what treatments uh, suit them best as an individual and in terms of their lifestyle and I think the psychological aspects of living with a health condition but also it's not it is about physical health I think when psychologists are working in medical settings but also psychologists are they specialize in in mental health so we're working to really think about how to enhance the medical care that this patient receives but also how do we optimize the mental health of this patient, of the families, so their health can be as good as possible, their mental health can be as good as possible, and they're living, they've got the best quality of life uh, for as long as possible. And I think as a multi-professional team, that's what we're working to do. And I think we very much benefit from complementary skill sets in that sense. And that's what good care does look like, and it can look like that. But we just know that across the country, um, there are gaps in some of the multi-professional teams at the moment, and it's very much work in progress. So Anne-Marie, you've spoken a little bit about the um, important role of different interdisciplinary team members. And I guess within your service, uh, they're very lucky to have you. Um, but psychologists and dedicated psychological support isn't always available within hospital services. So what can um, the, the ILD members of that service do to ensure that their patients perhaps get some support for psychological issues? I think the ILD teams do fantastically well providing um psychological support as part of their care they do that very well in terms of other resources I mean I think one of the things that patients are, are very good at is setting up peer support networks so one of the things I say to somebody with a new diagnosis is it, it's about you know different things suit different people but um, giving them information about uh, charities about uh, peer support networks, either in the area or national or international, 
um, so kind of online resources. Now, some people really like those kind of peer support groups and other people, it, it's not their thing. So it's, I think it's a bit about giving uh, people that kind of information. There's, I mean, I think what's wonderful about the internet is that there is such wonderful access to journal articles, um, lots of written information that's available available for people at the level that they want to read to. So that's a major resource that we didn't have a number of years ago. Well, if we think about community psychological support services, uh, we've got the IAPT services, which is I-A-P-T, which stands for Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. And if anybody goes on the NHS website and just in the search box, um, they just put IAPT, uh, what they'll find is a window that comes up with uh, the NHS Talking Therapies service. Um, And there is a service in every local area. And you will be able to, if you put in your postcode, uh, into the web page, it will give you one or two of your local talking therapist services. And if you click on the links, you'll find the services website. And uh, they all have a self-referral pathway. So you can fill out an online form and refer yourself. Or you can also go and speak to your GP and your GP will help you with the referral. Um, they usually have a telephone number as well. So if you don't want to do online forms, you can uh, telephone and they'll go through a series of standardized questions with you. So what they're looking to understand is um, what what are your circumstances? What are your worries? And the main problems that they work with, but also they've developed a lot over the years since they started. Um, but they support people with different kinds of anxiety. Um, they support people uh, who've been impacted through circumstances in their life um, and their mood is impacted so they feel low, they don't feel motivated, um, they're feeling down. So they're very good um, with that. They also support people with long-term health conditions. Uh, I always say to people, contact your local service and see how you get on um, because different things work for different people. Um, and some people have reported um, really positive uh Uh, experiences I think probably one thing just to mention is that since the pandemic we know that because of shielding and perceived vulnerability when you're living with a health condition uh, that increased sense of vulnerability that lots of um, patients had there have been lots of psychological effects of the pandemic which are still with us so there's been a big demand on these services and they have uh they have long waiting lists. So I think it's just just being realistic. It's something um, to be aware of. And if anybody does need urgent help or urgent support, again, there are different things. If you need somebody to talk to, there's a service like the Samaritans um, where you can find the number online. Sometimes it's worth having that in your phone if you just wanted to call up. It's anonymous. It's confidential. You can talk to another person about how you're genuinely feeling. And sometimes... Um, people just have, you know, a crisis and just need a connection and need to be able to talk about how they're feeling, and then that moment passes and 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 life moves on and the person feels better. But some and also with Samaritans, um, there's a text a text service as well. Um, so sometimes that can be it just builds in a bit of distance and people feel more comfortable just typing down their thoughts. Um, but other places to go to if you are feeling overwhelmed and you're just struggling to manage day to day you can go to your GP and um, although nobody wants to go to the local hospital to the A&E department there 
there are services open uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and there will always be somebody there who you can talk to and who will listen to you and will give you some advice and support in that moment um, if somebody is experiencing an emergency or a crisis. I think that's really valuable information. And I think particularly for um, our group of patients uh, post-pandemic, uh, I think that the skill set has possibly changed and we've seen the, the power of the patient voice, particularly through the charities and, and through the peer support networks, um, although, of course, they're not necessarily available 24-7. And, and we've talked a lot about the, the, the patient, Anne-Marie, and I guess one of the key um, group of people who support patients, um, although we also have to acknowledge that many patients live alone, uh, but a, a lot of patients will be supported by family members, by loved ones. Um, in terms of support for, uh, for, for loved ones, um, would they also be able to access these kind of services? Um, I guess what we do know is that so in terms of carers, supporting other people who have a health condition, whether that's physical health or mental health, I think what's been recognised over recent years is the uh, the responsibility and the challenges associated with being a carer. And I, I think we understand more and that we understand more those challenges and the impact on carers. I think their needs were probably not very visible for a long time. And so I think they are recognised. There are national strategy plans in relation to carer support and and the need, I think, for carers to look after their own health, their physical health and their mental health. Because if you're going to look after somebody, you have to start with really looking after yourself. Um, And again, there are local groups, there are local carer support groups, There are uh, networks, uh, online networks. Um, There are charities dedicated to the needs of carers. I think one of the things that's important is that carers do a great role in terms of supporting people with ILD. Um, But all of the services, we, in a way, it's about supporting the system. So we've got a healthcare system that needs to support or can usefully support the family system. It, it's probably less helpful to think about um, individuals and families do you know provide amazing loving uh, compassionate support to their loved ones uh, in in these situations I think there's a growing recognition and I think within you know in the hospital where we work we try to talk very much about rather than patient care we talk about patient and family care so really recognizing that family system and that you know, we live with social groups, we live within family systems, we, we live within social relationships. And actually, it's those relationships that can really help our physical health and our mental health. If we look at the literature on social isolation and loneliness, we know that people who don't have good uh, quality social relationships, that does impact on their physical health. And we do know, you know, at, at the very extreme end, that people who are who feel lonely and feel isolated, their physical health is not as good. I mean, we all have periods of feeling uh, lonely at times, um, but what can be very helpful is just acknowledging that within ourselves and talking to people and reaching out and forming contacts. But I think we can recognise really the value of social relationships. It's very uh, 
it's fundamentally important in terms of physical health and psychological well-being. Um, and the hospital system and the community healthcare system, uh, they are part of the supports for individuals and for families. Um, I think we probably need to try and talk more routinely about carers' needs and family supports. I think traditionally the NHS is a little bit focused on individual patients, but I think we're moving in the direction of person and family-centred care. Yeah, no, I hope so too. And I, I think thinking about that sense of, of belonging and the social interaction has made me reflect on the, the sort of growth of social prescribing um, in in general practice and community settings, which can help a lot of people in, in different ways. So thinking about people with, with interstitial lung disease and, and perhaps particularly pulmonary fibrosis, there are often those major transition points which you alluded to earlier, so perhaps starting oxygen therapy, um, perhaps transi- transitioning to a palliative care pathway, um, and then ultimately uh, transitioning to an end-of-life pathway. And I guess physically there are inherent, inherent challenges at, at those time points, but I uh, the psychological challenges are probably equal to the physical, uh, if not greater at times. And um, and I'm just wondering in your experience as a, as a psychologist or what your thoughts are around anything that, that we can do as non-psychologically trained healthcare professionals or whether uh, we, we should be reaching out to, to people like yourself to su- support our patients better during those periods of transition. I mean, those those are different. Uh, there are different psychological issues, but I think so. The transition to oxygen therapy, I think it's an end. Apart from the fact that there are then external visible signs of illness to to others for the person and what that means to their sense of identity and you know their self confidence, but it's it's a meaningful loss of physical independence, and it's. I think whenever we have a loss in health, there's a grief process. So it's very normal and natural for a person to feel upset um, and to uh, go through a process of adjusting to that loss of health. But people people are amazingly resilient um, and do adjust and can adjust and can go on to live the next stage of their physical health, um, have a good quality of life. So I think some of these processes, it's kind of worth recognising that they're time limited and but it's okay. It's okay to feel really upset at a certain point in time and to feel a little bit overwhelmed and to feel, I don't know if I can manage this. That's okay. And I think if that can be uh, expressed and there's a safe place within the team to have that conversation, that's incredibly therapeutic and reassuring for people. I think it's much harder when somebody's experiencing something and they can't share that with another person, whether that's a clinical nurse specialist or a doctor, or a family member. So I think something about being able to say, this is how I'm feeling, and someone else to acknowledge that, to validate that, to normalise that. They're simple things. It, it doesn't take um, a psychologist uh, with a postgraduate training to say that, but I think it's sometimes, it's just knowing that these are very simple, simple but therapeutic, but powerful things that we can do to support patients at these difficult times and I think similarly you know if we just take IPF uh, as an example by the time the person has an understanding of that and understands what the prognosis is 
they are certainly consciously being prompted to think about end-of-life issues and their own mortality. And it's very frightening. It's very frightening um, at first. But it doesn't continue to be frightening um, after a period of time. So I think it's, it's, it's very much about being present with people during those times of distress, but knowing that people can process, they can psychologically process these feelings and these worries, and they can get to a new stage. And I would say, I'm a psychologist who works in a hospital, and I probably talk to uh, patients and families about uh, about end of life issues and about dying. And I talk to people, if not every day, then every other day. But it's not in a bleak, um, uh, upset way at all. Far from it. it. It's it's in a slightly philosophical way. It's often said with humour, uh, with compassion. We can get to a place where we can talk about uh, these topics um, with a sense of underlying love and care um, and with the strengths that we possess as individuals, uh, within healthcare teams, within family systems. I, I think it's amazing what we can do as, as groups of people working in partnership with each other. It's partly around any one individual. I think it's uh, being very sensitive to where the person is and what the person wants to talk about. But sometimes I think if you can introduce something in a gentle, sensitive, compassionate way, and it's okay for us to talk and think about this, and are you worried? Is it playing on your mind? That gives people permission then to share their worries and their thoughts and their fears. Um, and that can be... Um, I, th- I think sometimes health professionals worry about having those conversations. And they're right, I think, to be, because it does. this is about, I would say, advanced communication skills and being very attuned to the person that you're talking to, uh, having strong, uh, empathic communication um, and, and developing your skills in that area. If you feel that you could, if you don't feel confident or if you could do better, I think sometimes we're not so good at, for example, practicing our, uh, our communication skills with other health professionals and receiving feedback about our skills and abilities. And I think if that training is done well, it's so, it's so valuable for any one of us because sometimes we don't know how we might be coming across until that's highlighted to us. And if it's highlighted in a very uh, encouraging profession in terms of professional development and skill development, that's a wonderful learning opportunity for health professionals to get better at what we do. But we do need somebody to you know, point that out to us way, where we might be limited in our skills. But um, And I think this is where palliative uh, care teams come in. They've got, they're very used to talking about advanced care planning and thinking with people very carefully and thoughtfully about what uh, what's on their mind and what's right for them. And I think collaborative work between for example, a specialist uh, palliative care team, nurses and doctors, and uh, the treating ILD, IPF team. I I think that can be um, a great partnership. Uh, No, that's uh, that's really powerful, uh, Anne-Marie, and and important and useful to the the listeners. And I I guess it leads me on to think that often as healthcare professionals, it it is difficult to open up those conversations. And sometimes we use um, questionnaires, be they they screening tools or be they reported outcome measures or symptom measures. And sometimes we use 
a patient's response on a questionnaire as a way in to um, to assess and explore more. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you would be happy to comment on on perhaps some screening tools that, that you might find helpful in, in practice or or if you have experience of any patient reported outcome measures that that um, appear to fit well in practice um, for, for for patients with interstitial lung disease that that we might find uh, helpful uh, as as non-psychologists I think that the ones that I mean just going back to the IAPTA services the ones that are widely used within psychological services uh, throughout uh, certainly England are the um, the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7. And uh, so PHQ-9 is a measure of uh, depression, low mood, and the GAD-7 is a measure of generalised anxiety. And, and they've both been uh, deemed acceptable to use um, in people with physical health conditions because obviously if you've got a physical health condition and you've got fatigue um, you might not feel motivated uh, to be able to do it might be difficult to do things every day and if you can't do things if you've got fatigue and you are very fed up with your symptoms with your breathlessness um, your cough is getting you down um, you can quite easily see a, a secondary effect that will impact mood and then it can be a little bit of a vicious circle. The more down you feel, the less you feel able to do. Um, and that that's a very natural process of physical health impacting mood and then low mood impacting um, on physical health. So bi-directionally, but in a, a negative spiral, spiraling down circle. Um, now, I think these measures, they've got their strengths and they've got their limitations, and I think it's just about using them. I think they're useful. They're screening tools, as you say. I think the items, uh, they they allow patients to – they're also obviously they're, – they're filled out um, by patients. So if any of us were filling out these questionnaires, we can decide what we want to share with the healthcare team. So you might be feeling – uh, you might be feeling really low, but you might not indicate that on your questionnaire, because I, there are, you know, there are complex factors at play here. People don't want to be seen as having anxiety or being low in mood. People don't want to be seen necessarily as uh, the healthcare team feeling that they they can't cope. Nobody wants to be seen as weak, as vulnerable. So I think with self-report questionnaires that they're not an absolute uh, reflection of, of how a person is experiencing. It's what the person is is reporting to the healthcare team using these screening tools. Now, they can be exactly as you say. If somebody wants to share that they're feeling low or that they're very worried every day, they're really struggling, it's a way for that person to communicate to the healthcare team. It can get picked up uh, by the healthcare team and it can be raised in the consultation and they're standardized measures. So, you know, in two different services, you can use the same standardized measures and you can you can compare results. So there are lots of um, kind of clinical benefits for a team, as well as thinking about an individual's uh, patient's experience. They might start off, you know, very anxious and feeling very down. Three months later, you might repeat that standardized measure um, and they're feeling so much better. Their mood is good. They've got more energy. Um, and their anxiety level has really gone down. So that's a very nice um, 
indication that the person has improved in terms of their mental health. Um, so that there are lots and lots of benefits in that sense. But what we know with physical health is that something like, um, on say the depressed measure, something like uh, low mood or fatigue, there's an overlap between feeling depressed and having a physical health condition. And it takes uh, a clinician in conversation with a patient to really disentangle what are the, what is the patient's experience here. Is it that the person is feeling down and depressed and sad about something? Or is it the manifestation of uh, the health condition and the symptoms? And it's not particularly a mental health issue. And I think that takes a little bit of skill um, in terms of that sense. Whilst the standardised measures have their benefits, there isn't anything particularly magical within that series of questions. And what you can do exactly the same thing in a clinical consultation with a patient. You can ask, you can say to somebody quite simply, how stressed are you feeling at the moment on a scale of 0 to 10? You know, where would you rate your stress level? Now, when patients want to tell us that they're feeling really stressed, they just very simply say 10 out of 10 or 11 out of 10. Um, if they're, if if stress is not an issue for the person, they'll say uh, one out of 10. And similarly, with other constructs, concepts, we can say, how generally worried are you feeling at the moment in terms of anxiety levels? Where would you rate yourself on a scale of not to 10? We can do the same with mood. So standardized measures are great, but don't think that we have to rely on those or use those. We can ask these very good questions in a, in a medical consultation and get valuable information um, with it within the consultation. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I, I wouldn't want to have an al- algorithmic approach to care. I think that we need that interaction. We need the communication skill. Um, we need the metrics sometimes. They're helpful in different ways. Um, but the quality of, of, of the communication, as you've highlighted so eloquently uh, throughout this podcast, is, um, is, is fundamentally important. Anne-Marie, there's much more I would like to discuss with you, but I, I think we're at time. And I'd really like to um, thank you very much for joining us today to talk about uh, psychological well-being for our patients and their families with interstitial lung disease. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne-Marie. It's been a pleasure.